Welcome to Literary Fiction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. I'm excited for our journey on the show today. Me too. We are going into the woods. <gasps> are the woods a joyous escape from the morals and prying eyes of polite society where rules are turned topsy-turvy or a dark and forbidding place where no one is safe? Or both. Yes, or both. And I think we might argue today that it ends up being both. It's always the complex answer, isn't it? Yeah, babe. Plus, as usual, our theme is inspired by our author guest. And today we'll be talking to Luke Turner, whose memoir, Out of the Woods, is a beautiful and frank examination of sexuality, love, religion, and London's Epping Forest. Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little more about Luke? I absolutely do. Uh, Luke Turner is a writer, editor, and curator based in London. He co-founded and edits the influential online music publication The Quietus and regularly writes on music, culture, and place for a variety of magazines and websites and broadcasters. Out of the Woods is his first book. Thank you for doing that. Always a pleasure. Wonderful. <laughs> Very well said. Very well um, said. And also this month we have some announcements, don't we? We absolutely do. And... Uh, We've got a really exciting one. First up, we are about to start bringing you mini-sodes. Um, yay! Yay! <laughs> so no shadow words. <laughs> um, so we, we, we decided that we, we want to bring you a bit more content and we wish we could do full shows but uh, every couple of weeks, but it, it's too much. So we're going to release these little nuggets of, of things um, and it will be coming out on all podcast apps in two weeks on February 5th. So if you'd like to hear more of me and Carrie wanging on about books and maybe telling you some secrets, you are in luck. Um, they're going to be a little bit more relaxed and personal than the us usual shows and give us the chance to talk about other cultural stuff that we have been enjoying. So um, please check it out. Please send us some feedback. Uh, please still speak to us afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little nervous. Yeah, me too. To reveal myself further. Oh, girl. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um, also, we're going to be doing a live show at Jewish Book Week in the, on the evening of the 7th of March at King's Place in London, in King's Cross. Um, we're going to interview a special guest, still to be announced, and we'd really love to see you there. We'll be publicizing um, relentlessly between now and then, but you can find more details on the Jewish Book Week website. Um, and uh, yeah, come on down. It would be really fun to meet you and see you there. Yeah, we're excited. So getting back to the show today, we will be talking to Luke Turner about Out of the Woods, more generally about the forest and literature, and finally giving our usual book recommendations. So come as we try to see the wood for the trees for the next hour on Literary Friction. Oh, she went there. <laughs> I went there. I would have done Teddy Bear's Picnic, but okay. There were a lot of things I could use, and <laughs> frankly, that's probably not the best one, but I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to support you in your choice. Luke Turner, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Do you mind going ahead? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, this is a bit about halfway through the book when everything's going wrong uh, for me. It's a bit stuck in many aspects of life, doesn't really have anywhere to live, and nothing's working in terms of making myself feel better. And I decide, because, you know, you're told nature, go for a walk. I decide to go for a walk, and this is what happens. I'd chosen to start my walk at the more urban southern tip of the forest, hoping that unfamiliar sights might help shift the all-too-familiar mood. Taking a lungful of traffic fumes and turgid summer air and trying to set my mind straight, I stepped over the rough vegetation at the edge of the road by Forest Gate Station and strode out. Heaps of freshly mown hay were scattered across Centenary Path, golden in the sun and green in the shade. 
The ground looked bare around these islands, and the short stubble was strewn with litter. I nearly trod on a road-killed fox, its eyes and tongue rotted to nothing, the ruddy brown fur blending with the grass, its flesh, blood and organs already dissolved into the earth. The bear on the label of an empty can of strong Polish lager growled up from a patch of mud next to a pair of pink panties that would have looked as if they were spread out for drying were it not for the crotch ripped by the mower's blade. On the far side of Wanstead Flats, the forest is crossed by a huge and noisy A-road. The tunnel beneath it is full of crap and artificially lit, even in the middle of a summer's day. As I squinted into the sun on the other side, what had been a quiet niggle started to get louder in the back of my mind. It was a thought I tried to suppress. This was supposed to be a purposeful walk, wholesomely fuelled by sandwiches and apples, but it was becoming harder to ignore as I left the subway and walked back onto the forest land. On the map, I was just a few centimetres from Eagle Pond, adjacent to Epping Forest's most popular gay cruising area. I ought to go and have a look. In the interests of research, of course. But my mind that day was no sanitised laboratory. I wonder when this part of the forest became established as a place for men forced by law and religious prejudice into twilighting their sexuality to find a knee trembler under the hornbeams. How does Mother Nature call out to her dear boys? The first record I can find in the forest archives is a 1931 request to remove a hollow oak in Wanstead, lest it start being used for objectionable practices. In our supposedly liberal age, it's all too easy to forget the ingrained prejudice, loneliness and social isolation that forces queer men to seek out places like Epping Forest and make them their own. Yet I wasn't in the closet. I was out as bisexual to all of my friends. I met plenty of men through work, at gigs and clubs, though the only ones I ever developed romantic and emotional attractions to always seemed to be straight. I didn't need to go to Eagle Pond or anywhere like it, but within me was a powerful drive that knew places like this were out there, never more than a bus ride away, and I struggled to resist them. The grassy way curved to the left, a channel bundling me along. I wanted to be led. My hands tingled, blood racing, drunk on desire. A man waddled in the other direction, and though I refused to meet his gaze, I knew it was fixed upon me. Now out to a bit more of a plain, the pond to the right, behind it the roof of Snaresbrook Crown Court. I wondered how many men over the years had found themselves being punished for what they got up to in the bushes not far away, a judicial system that has been as homophobic as it frequently still is racist, administering cruel punishments of hard labour or chemical castration for what later became, in tabloid and divorce proceedings vernacular, a moment of madness. It's the discarded soggy tissues that give these places away, white splotches against the undergrowth. Horny Hansels need only follow the trail to find what they're looking for. A bloke in a Tottenham Hotspur sports jacket walked past me, half looking at his phone. He headed under an elder and paused. I was well used to the coded signals, the furtive eyes, the brush of a hand against a crotch, the purposeful walk that slowed to a linger, but wasn't sure what he might be after. I walked away and stumbled into a pot-bellied man who was sitting on a log not reading the metro. His intent was clear the moment he put his newspaper down, stood up and started after me purposefully, and I had to jink through the muddy tracks to lose him. It wasn't difficult to escape. 
The paths here are convoluted, but this is a private network, beyond cartography, beyond nature. It felt more like the warren of dank, meandering corridors and dark rooms that one can stumble into in a gay sauna. Little spurs disappeared off to end at trunks. Low branch overhangs were the roofs of sultry bowers that had clearly hosted fantastic frenetic orgies. It wasn't just the damp that started to make my breath feel heavy as I spotted a baseball cap through a gap in the bush. I approached. The face beneath the cap grinned at me. And grin he might. Crouching on the ground in front of him, two men were taking it in turns to suck his dick, wanking each other off as they did so. One wore a decent suit, the other the overalls of a painter. I smiled and carried on walking, fully intending to leave them to it. But this was a labyrinth created by desire, and compulsion can make you walk in circles just as much as the distracting randomness of any forest. I stumbled forwards, but a tunnel of holly swept me up like a fairground ghost train and brought me to a glutinous pop as a cock was hurriedly pulled from a mouth and four startled eyes turned to peer at me. I apologised for disturbing them, but the sucky beckoned. I shook my head and walked on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what a great way to start our show. <laughs> but it's just slightly ribald for breakfast. But, you no, know. I like it. I like, I, you know, Horny I, I feel woken. Horny Hansels <laughs> have to eat breakfast too. Um, so I hope you can start by just telling us a bit about Epping Forest, the, the history of this place, what it is, and also what it means to you personally and why you wanted to start there in this book. Yeah, it's a... Um, long thin forest that stretches from right in the sort of middle of the east end of London and curves up out into the Essex countryside and it was traditionally a hunting forest for the king and the nobles of um, England and some monks you know forest isn't actually a place with trees it's a legal term for a, an area where the king hunted deer basically um, it's just changed to mean an area with trees and that meant there were certain rights over the land. It was quite a contested space between commoners, um, noblemen, and, and, and uh, the king. And in the 19th century, it was being cut down as London expanded. Um, but a working-class family called the Willingales asserted their right to lop the trees, which was to cut them for firewood, and got arrested. And it started this huge campaign, the first ever conservation movement anywhere, um, which resulted in the forest being saved in 1878 for the people of London. And I've been going there since I was a kid in the, in the 80s. My parents are from there. My granny lived near there. My uncle and auntie still live opposite the forest. And it was just a place that was totally fixed in my imagination. Moved around a lot as a kid, and that was this constant, and I loved it. And I grew up in a really crap commuter town, and I loved going to see my granny, and we'd drive off the motorway and into the forest, and all the trees looked really weird because of this cutting that used to be done and the more I start finding out about it you realize it's it's just got this bonkers history Dick Highway Dick Turpin the highwayman used to hide out there and rob people the Cray gangsters used to take people to torture them there there's still bodies being buried all the time by gangsters there was somebody dumped in an Ikea bag actually in that area I just read about by the cruising ponds the other year it's this very strange place and nobody really goes there you know it's very odd people walk their dogs in it um local people around the forest but it's not that well engaged with uh, and you you can be walking down a very normal suburban london street i think what's at the end of that and boom you're in this incredibly hectic very dark uh landscape where the city is always audible you can always hear airplanes the motorway 
traffic, uh, dogs and other things you might not want to hear. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm still quite scared of forests from all those stories that you hear as a kid, right? Don't stray from the path mm. and all that. But what I loved in the book is the way that you weave the sense of um, the mysticism of the forest and all of that, like the respect, but also the fear of it with your story about understanding your bisexuality. And I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the process of kind of having those two parallel strands and why they felt so organic to you. In a way, they didn't feel organic. It was quite, it was just, they just sort of happened. It was very, very odd. Because I think I had gone searching for the nature cure after being this situation where a relationship that had been great, really, with someone who was amazing had broken down. And in part because I hadn't dealt with so many things, you know, all this sort of crap from the past meant that this intimacy was just not something that I could feel ever. Um, and so I was going into the forest again and again and again to try and get this nature cure, to try and connect with this sort of innocent prelapsarian self, like you're told is going to happen. Go into nature, it will, it will fix you. And, and it wasn't happening. And meanwhile, I was really sort of, sort of exploring sexuality and trying to understand it and what my motivations were and what my true desires were. Uh, and so the two things happened together. And I think it was like re reading about, you know, why ideas of what's natural. You know, Epiphoris is none of it is natural. It's entirely human made. A thousand years ago, it was a completely different species of trees in there. Um, so, and then, you know, growing up religious, you sort of think about what's what's natural in God's eyes uh, in terms of sexuality, and somehow all that sort of blizzarded together in my in my head. Um, so you you mentioned about growing up religious, and I found the the exploration of religion really interesting in this book. You write about it in such a refreshing way for for me from the things that I've read. Um, and I love the way you described the love of growing up in a, in a Christian family when it was Methodist, your yeah, family. Yeah. Um, and that experience of having your parents and then God as kind of another parent. But obviously you go into the complexities of that when it comes to discovering sexuality. Um, and I wonder, like when you were writing those those passages in the book, did you have were you aware of the um, of what you wanted to say about religion or did it come just very much from your gut? Um, I think the religion aspect, because I, I didn't realise the book was so much about religion until I mean I finished it and I couldn't bear to read it because it was quite traumatic writing some of it. Um, and then when I was reading the audio book, I was like, oh right, this isn't a book about forests; it's a book about sex and religion. Uh, hmm, interesting. Um, I think I wanted to have that in there because over the years I've got really I've had enough of militant atheism. I've never I've never rejected faith at all. Um, I've never been able to, even if I'd wanted to. I can't. Um, it's part of me. And I don't think I ever did want to. I never sort of consciously thought, right, that's it, God, fuck off. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there was, there's a book that's coming out, um, with, and it's based on a conversation between Richard Dawkins and three other blokes in 2008 that supposedly kick-started the atheist movement, and it's called The Four Horsemen. And you're like, this is just exactly what's wrong with these, these atheist bros. You know, they're, just, it, they're, they're worse than any kind of Christian person that I've ever met. Uh, they're dogmatic and militant and unkind and brusque and just nasty bunch of whoppers really and so I was quite determined to be able to say look this is my story you don't have to reject religion and and but it was also a challenge to religious people I think to say look this is what uh, your oppression does to people this is what you're from a heteronormative usually male perspective straight male perspective this is what you're doing to people like me um, and to be able to say you don't, you, why you know you, you you can retain faith while dealing with battling with these issues, 
And, and I'm really pleased to be able to do that because I, I think it's time that people were a bit more nuanced in their thoughts about religion. And it's very much time that religious people were more nuanced in their thoughts about sexuality, obviously, but uh, yeah, it goes well, I, both ways. I think that really comes across. It, there's a lovely fluidity to it. And that's, you know, for for your reader to be able to, you know, re- reading other people's ideas of religion can feel quite impenetrable sometimes. And it really didn't. It felt like this wonderfully kind of welcoming yeah, contemporary perspective. I thought it was I thought it was great. I was really interested and compelled by the way that you talk about bisexuality and bisexuality in society particularly. Um and the difficult position that bisexual people are often in because they're rejected by both often heteronormative and queer groups because they don't seem to fit into either. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that and why you wanted to write about that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was so weird growing up in the 90s and there was just no bisexual people anywhere. Uh, and the gay world was very alluring and I was I was really excited by it. But then I knew I couldn't fit into it to the sort of... It, 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 I had so many rejections from gay men who were snide about bisexuality or fetishized it, which is fine in the right context, but it's not going to result in anything lasting. And I just, I just felt that even now in these supposed times when everything's more accepting, I just don't. I, I'm really suspicious of that. I've still found that it, it people aren't at all. And I know I sort of wrote the book as well for bisexual men because in my years of you know, there's a lot of alluded to sex and actual sex in the book, but in the years of kind of talking to bisexual men, particularly in these kind of secret spaces of cruising or, or online or grinder and stuff like that, none of them are out. They're all sort of like, you know, are you out? No, no, God, no, you know. Uh, and, I, and I think it's it's maybe the last taboo, weirdly enough. I think it's just not discussed and not accepted. Maybe it is among some younger generations, particularly in cities or whatever, but the fact that the school I went to that's in the book failed its school inspection last year for homophobic bullying suggests that, you know, if, if that's still going on just in a town outside London, then there's just not that much dialogue and acceptance. Um, and I think... This, I do think there's a difference for bisexuality with men and women. I think th- there's a problem with the fetishization of female bisexuality, which is a different issue. Um, but with male bisexuality, I think it's seen as more of a threat. And it's seen as cowardice by some gay men. Um, I can understand that because you get to pass as straight. You know, you can have a girlfriend. You you possibly don't interact with the gay scene or community. You don't have to be out to colleagues and things like that. So you do have an easier life because of that passing. I can see why that would cause resentment. But on the other hand, being in that this very lonely position, bisexuality, because of that. You also talk in the book about how when you were younger, you had experiences of sexual abuse, essentially, with older men. And I wonder if, if you could talk about your decision to include that in the book and whether that felt complex or, or not. Yeah, I felt that had to go in in the end because it was such a pivotal experience in my life and everything else kind of came, was was impacted by that. And I'd written a piece, when Milo, uh, the alt-right idiot, had written the, said the thing about kind of his relationships with older men and made a joke about it. And and it really hit a nerve. When I read that, I started crying and I was just sort of like, oh, oh this, this is making, just makes me think of how I used to have always made jokes about kind of these these uh, relationships and I wrote a piece for the quietest website I co-edit 
and it just really hit a nerve with people and I got some really powerful emails from people who've been through similar situations men and women actually both and I felt then that I could write it and I could put it in and I wanted to confront people with this you know for all the me too and um the Savile and uh yew tree and all of that it's big, it's monsters, it's big cartoon monsters, big media figures, um, you know, who we can kind of almost parcel off into into celebrity world. And I think the, 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 there are these people are lurking everywhere in town centres and, and parks and so on, and, and particularly probably now on the internet. Um, and I wanted to include that because it was, it was a formative experience and it's, an, and it's something that's not discussed. Really, this sort of like ordinary suburban sexual predation and what it does to people and and the way that you know I was I was expecting to get some flack for it to be honest because I you know I, I also despise the way that um, there's people off the right wing often associate homosexuality with paedophilia in a way that they won't with heterosexual men predating on young girls and so I was a bit sort of oh am I gonna get stick for this but I was like, well, no, I have to be honest to my truth and I think for some men and I've spoken to to gay friends who had experiences at a similar age with gay men, and that was kind of their welcoming into the gay world. And it was actually a positive experience. And, that, you know, that's fine. I can't deny that experience. But I think they were kind of like nice men, not that much older, who then introduced them to gay literature and films and a kind of community in a, a place where there wasn't one, where this was a, a disgusting pensioner in the bogs. You know, it's kind of um, a slightly different situation. Um, but I just it had to it had to go in and that was the hardest bit to write like sat there going back into almost like a kind of trance and I'd blocked out so much of it and I read suddenly all these little details kind of kept coming back and it was it was really hard and horrible to write and I don't like reading that bit out loud or at all (laughs) but I had to I had to do it and it had to be as visceral as it is for it to 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 sort of have to work as writing I think it's difficult to read too, but I think really important. And I was really glad you included it, especially as you say, you used to joke about it. And in society, you also say it, there's so much myth surrounding sex between older men and younger boys that people don't even think about it as abuse. Um, and I think you make such a compelling point in this book, just by writing about the experience that it is abuse and you've had to come back from that. Yeah. And that's been a very long process. And it, you know, it, it was, the, the, for all however grim those situations were, the amount of adrenaline and um, you know, you know, that was that was the problem. That it was it, 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 that's the addictive compulsive aspect because it's such a crazy high, but a very bleak one. Yeah, and I think you write really powerfully about addiction as well in this book, and I wonder what the process was of thinking about some of the things you do as addictive behaviors and and how you wanted to write about that i think that it's one of the it's again the discourse just isn't there around sexual compulsion because you see it from uh people who sort of clearly barely had a wank let alone had sex denying that it exists and saying that everybody is you know, it's just people being greedy and so on and so on which is a very similar argument used about bisexuality actually there's a crossover <laughs> between that and and you know for a long time there these this sort of behaviour patterns there was I didn't I don't I don't want to denigrate them there was a lot of it was really hot and a huge amount of fun and and 
you know, had some wonderful times, but it's when it became habitual and you sort of find yourself getting into a situation and know, and then going, oh, I don't want, really want to be in this situation. I've been in this situation so many times, I know what it's gonna feel like afterwards. Uh, and, re and feeling like a complete loss of control um, and be able to suddenly see triggers and danger points and danger people almost uh, to lead down that. Um, and you know, there is, I think it's really good we live in a more sex positive age but I think there's a binary thinking with that where it's kind of all promiscuity is brilliant. It's somebody you've taken control of your sexuality and um, manifesting it. And I think, well, yeah, that's probably true for a lot of people, some people, but not everybody. And sometimes these behavior patterns are borne out by darker things that have happened in the past. Yeah. I also totally change in tact, but love the way you write about music. And obviously this is something that you do for the quietest a lot as well. Um, and I also was a massive Suede fan. Oh, were you? Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Brett Anderson lived on the street I grew up in, and I made him a birthday card when I was like 12 years old. Oh, wow. And went to put it through his letterbox, and he opened the door, and I think he was high, and he was very shocked. Was that, was that in the dark years, of the bad years of Suede? It was in the bad years of Suede, and <laughs> oh, I'm no. going to say, like, dear Brett Anderson was not pleased to see me and my friend, and our, like, <laughs> weird glittery birthday card. <laughs> But I was really that happy. That's a fantastic story. <laughs> I love that. I was really the happy. The Dark Lord in his... In his no, it was, his, but he did. His... He opened it and he, bless him, you know, he was very hollow in the face and like, <laughs> quite yellow and, yeah, sweating. But um, it was, you know, I was thrilled to see him in the flesh. Mm. But yeah, I, I love the way that you write about that and the fact that, you know, Suede's lyrics were kind of the opening of a window into an acceptable Absolutely. bisexuality. Yeah, because Brett got so much stick for that thing he said about bigger bisexual man has never had a homosexual experience and it, he, he and I don't think it was taken in the right way I suspect he might well have done but it, I don't think it mattered because what Suede offered was bisexuality and sexual drama and sex sex in the city <laughs> <laughs> you, heard it you, know what I, you know what i mean um but yeah they i mean they did have an openly gay drummer which was very you know Britpop. it was about the most hetero bloke rubbish you could think of um and and those the lyrics were very very queer and they just just blew my mind you know it was so exciting to be like wow these these people have created something that i can totally live in and that's my world now and i was in the suede fan club and i used to go to the to the fan club gigs on my own and and just sort of stand there and everyone else had straight hair and was really beautiful and it was and and then I'd go home and it, the whole thing was 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 wonderful it was a total lifesaver it really swayed were and let's get back to the forest because actually the larger theme of the show today is forests and mm. literature and um I think we were both really excited by that idea because the forest represents so much more than what it is in the human psyche and I think you really play with that to, to good effect in this book. One of the things I really loved was how ineffective the forest was at healing you in mm. the way that you had expected. And um, and you mentioned that a little bit uh, earlier in the interview, but um, I wonder if you could just talk about, do you think our society is overly focused on the sort of restorative or curative effects of nature? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a very weird uh, construct that's not really been around in human thought for that long and I think it's a reaction to urbanization and digitization now you know you're supposed to leave your smartphone at home to go into the woods no, no take it with you take pictures use the map 
you know, find out what trees are and stuff on 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 app, other nature apps and websites. But yeah, I think I think it's it's like it's so weird. It's such an industry, the nature industry, um, for literature or, um, you know, Instagram location tourism and and things like that. And I just found it so trite and twee. And very exclusionary, like to, to be able to go into nature takes a certain level of financial privilege. There's definitely a gender privilege, which is never talked about, about, you know, I can walk through the forest, even though I'm, if I'm in a terrible state of mind, I can still go into it without fear of what might happen to me. Now, some of those fears might be unfounded that Alison, who was a forest keeper, she was always saying to me, the why do women fear going into the woods? I'm in there all the time. It's it's great that it's more dangerous to be in Loughton bars than it is to be in the forest. But there, there is the perception of increased danger for women in lonely spaces. Um, and there's a lot of work being done about that at the moment. And I think that challenges the kind of placid acceptance of nature or the, you know, this, the Japanese theory of forest bathing. You go into the forest and the enzymes improve you. And, you know, there's apparently scientific research on this. But, I, I'm not convinced. I think we need a more complex attitude towards nature, particularly in a time when we need to engage with environmental crisis, to just see nature as this sort of placid um, thing over there that we're not part of is very dangerous. I think we need a more gnarly engagement with it and to be, well, we, we, we evolved with nature and we are still with nature. We're creating human-made ecosystems all the time, but they're still ecosystems. And why are some privileged over others? You know, why is a uh, a supposedly natural forest like Epping Forest, which isn't even natural, better than another kind of forest? And I just, I think I found a lot of that attitude when I was reading it and, and observing it on documentaries or whatever, just so alienating um, that I kind of wanted to, pick that apart a bit do you think do you think it's to do with fear a little bit like you know fetishes tend to come from things that are, are partly feared and partly desired and that there's this sense that you know unboundaried nature is frightening to the humans so we try to put it in parks or you know cordon it off and maybe thinking about it as something that we do in our leisure time means that we don't have to engage with the fact that we're also ruining it and that will lead to our own ruin as a as a species Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. There is that that disconnect that we have now where we don't understand what the processes are. I mean, I, I do think when I talk to friends who who live in the countryside, they find the kind of nature obsession of urban people quite funny. They're just sort of like, well, we, we live in this, you know, and it's not this it's where people work and everything has a purpose in the countryside. And yeah, for me, it's a it's the na nature is it, all it is is sex and death. You go into a forest and you it's covered with a carpet of dead leaves there's skulls everywhere there's things killing each other you get little p piles of feathers where a pigeon's just been eaten and that's quite exciting i just don't know why that's sort of gone out of the discourse but i think you're right i think people people don't want to be confronted by that that we are that's all humans are as well is sex and death and scrabbling for survival <laughs> Yeah, you have that great quote from Werner Herzog. Yeah, I couldn't, yeah. Which I, which I would love to read in his accent, but I feel Please it will be offensive. Yeah, no, no, I can't. Um, but I, it's. <laughs> I really want no, to see you No, I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. No. 
Taking a close look at what's around us, there is a kind of harmony. It is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. <laughs> I just love that. I mean, it's so yeah. Herzog, but it's so true. It's true. Like, yeah. there, there is nothing erotical here. It's it, it's 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 incredible. Now, I, when I when I was watching that film, and that actually that that passage just really resonated. Werner Herzog gets it. He's made some of the most beautiful landscape films there's ever been. But he sees it for what it is. You know, it's dev- his, his depiction of the natural world is entirely honest. I love it. Great. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> He's the bum. <laughs> uh, I think that's a good note of agreement to end on. Yeah. Okay. Luke Turner, it has been an absolute pleasure Thank to you. have it's you. Thank you. Great. Um, and the book is called Out of the Woods. It is. And yes. it is available in all good bookshops. Yeah. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, inspired by Out of the Woods by Luke Turner, which is the forest in literature. I was so excited um, to talk about this. I think because we're both students of literature and therefore have had to write at least one essay about the role of the forest in various novels. I mean, it's... but But I think there's a reason for that. And it's because the forest occupies a very large space in the human mind and also in the pages of literature it's become a very representative and fertile space for writers and so there are so many things to talk about today um so what i thought we might just start with is maybe breaking down some of the different things that forest can represent in literature how do you feel about that? You know I love lists. I love it when you break it down for me, <laughs> sister. That's what I like. So what I was thinking first is that the forest can represent the unknown, the sort of opposite of society, a place for change and transition and liminality. Bang. Bingo. Definitely. Yes. And it's. I think it's one of those... That is an element of forest that is laid down in like some of our earliest foundational myths around this kind of stuff, like the fairy tales that we get told as tiny kids. Little Red Riding Hood obviously being like the most famous of these, where the forest is a place of complete fascination and also potential peril. The same in Hansel and Gretel, which you know Luke um, references in his book. But I think that this these stories set set up the idea that there are places that are safe for us to go and places that are dangerous for us to go but that the places of danger contain great adventure and risk that's worth taking although then you might end up in the oven in some old lady's gingerbread house yeah so that's sort of like that's the starting point isn't it it's a it's a place that is different in some way it's a place where things can change and transition um but you know and and as you sort of referenced before and as luke talks a lot about um, the forests really are a place of darkness. Um, they, you know, in, in terms of their physical space, they are literally dark, even during the day. Um, it's often, you don't really have a, a clear view through them. You know, it's blocked by trees. And partially because of that, there are places where things that are secretive and furtive um, can happen, some of which are great, but a lot of which are scary. Yeah, well, it's and it's worth making the point that Jung actually wrote specifically about how the forest represents the unconscious and the id as this unchecked, voracious creature that bandies around in this wooded kind of, yeah. Yeah, totally. 
Um, but I think the, the flip side of that is that the forest is also a place for freedom. Yeah, definitely. And that made me think of The Hunger Games um, by Suzanne Collins, where Katniss Everdeen, the, the lead character, she defies, she defies government, she defies social expectations from a contemporary perspective in that she's a woodswoman and we're so used to the figure of the woodsman, right? Um, and the forest in that book represents a space where she is able to act in defiance of the structures that are repressive to everybody else um, and, yeah, offer her freedom. Yeah, and there are so many books throughout the history of literature, books, poems, everything, that um, the forest, because it is away from society, because it's a place where rules and morals don't apply, um, people who are outsiders or outcasts find real solace there. Um, I'm thinking of Toni Morrison's beloved, um, the I think her, Seth escapes from slavery into the safety of the woods, and the woods are a very important part of her escape. Um, in A Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, that is, you know, you say that Shakespeare obviously uses the woods in many different ways in his plays, but in that play, that the forest is a place where people can experiment with different identities, where love and sexuality can blossom in a way that maybe wouldn't be acceptable um, in in other spaces. And that's what's so sort of exciting and titillating about that play in many ways. In The Scarlet Letter, which I want to talk about a little bit more later, Hester Prynne can escape the sort of shame of society in the woods. And that's the only place where she isn't in a panopticon of moral judgment so um and I think probably as literature becomes more socially conscious the woods in literature start to morph into a more positively transgressive space as they are I think ultimately in in Luke's book as well yeah definitely I think also though like one of the main images that came to my mind when we decided on a theme was the line from William Blake's poem tiger tiger burning bright in the forests of the night what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry and I think that encapsulates this double experience of fascination and fear and the freedom of a tiger roaming through a forest but then also the fact that as a human being we're on the opposite of some kind of line there um, and yeah I love what you said about a midsummer night's dream but also in that forest it's also um, a place where a lack of consent happens and terrible things happen in the space of the sexual freedom. So I think it's I think that's why they're exciting to think about, because they're never one thing or the other. Mm. Um, yes, you're right. And that makes them electric. Um, but also, I think to return just a little bit to the magic and mysticism of them, because um, like we've said, you know, from fairy tales, we're aware of that from very early on. But then again, like Harry Potter, the Forbidden Forest is this massive beating heart in the in the kind of energy of those books. And also for me, Narnia, I mean, I grew up on the tales of Narnia and the idea of slipping through the back of a wardrobe into this completely alternative landscape where anything's possible, but also terrible things lurk, you know, and that experience of generally being fearful of woodland spaces when you're a kid. I don't know if it's the same for you because you didn't grow up in a city like I did, but for me, they were fascinating and terrifying in equal measure. Yes. Um, well, I grew up in the middle of the woods, but it doesn't mean I wasn't frightened of the woods. I mean, they're, they're scary places, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there that, first of all, they are all of these things at once that we're talking about, and that's part of their power, and also that... Um, the magic and mysticism comes from that unknowability. Um, that's why they're so often depicted as places where unicorns live and where the rules change and where um, 
a, a spider might eat you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 because and and why they're so powerful in children's literature in particular, which you've been talking about, um, because they are a place where children can go and see a different version of the world in which they know, which is such an appealing thing, especially for children. Yeah, but I think also because they are connected to ideas of ancients and permanence, nothing makes you feel quite as small and transient as a forest, as a human being, because you're looking at these trees that are, especially when you're a child, I mean, visibly ancient compared to you. And this idea that this is a space that has pre-existed you and will exist after you're gone, um, I think that, that that's something else that lends this magic to them. Um, and because it's a, it's a universal it's a universal symbol, I suppose, also, whenever you enter a forest. I don't know about you, but when I'm in those woodland spaces, I remember, I think about all these characters from literature, all of them that have entered my mind at different points in my life. I think about Red White Riding Hood. I think about the wolf, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> I do. I think about Puck. Um, and they, they draw me into a space of immense kind of creative thinking, which is a wonderful gift to be able to experience, I think. Yeah, totally. And, well, it's worth talking about the human relationship with the forest, which you're sort of alluding to there, because I think that's changing and mm. it has changed over time. And it's really just interesting. You know, of course, all of the things we're talking about are uh, people projecting their own psyches onto these spaces, which, as we talked about in the interview with Luke, don't care for us. You know, they're not they're not interested in how we feel about them or whether we're afraid or excited. They're places where nature is going about its life in ways that are both murderous and life sustaining and I think maybe as there's been a bit of a backlash to all of these things like forest bathing and and finding a cure in nature because that is the case and also the point about the fact that our relationship with the natural world is changing as we grow in consciousness of the damage that we've done to it and the damage that that in turn will do to us as society moves forward um, I'm going to be interested to see how that's reflected in the kind of writing people are doing because the forest as a symbol is no longer acceptable because we need to engage with it as an entity and an entity that we are having an effect on in one way or another. Um, and I think that that internalizing that is really important. Yeah, there's definitely been a movement within nonfiction to stop anthropomorphizing nature because it's not very useful. I also think there there's a movement, as you say, related to the fact that forests are literally disappearing um, towards a much more benign, nostalgic sort of aesthetic view of nature because we see what we are losing. And so the forest is not a fearful place to be chopped down, but rather a place that needs to be saved. Yeah. And that completely changes your relationship with how you feel about trees and woods and creatures. Yeah, and how you feel about well, is it a sense of privilege to be able to go and experience them or is it a sense of obligation to conserve something? Mm. Either way, you're still um, projecting a relationship with nature in a, in a way that's problematic because it's founded in your humanity, right? Yeah. And therefore, what follows on from that is a bunch of expectations and actually still quite a colonizing energy where you want to take something from it. But I think it's that's the thing with these um, entities that have been presented to us in romantic and narrativized ways from very young it's really hard to disengage from that so they remain mystical and romantic even in this knowledge that that's not helpful the world is fucked we need to change our attitude it's really difficult I mean I've never read any I was trying to think so hard for this show but I haven't actually read anything that addresses this creatively 
So I haven't read this and I'm re- I'm interested to read it, but uh, Richard Powers' The Overstory, which was shortlisted for the Booker this year, is like narrated by a forest. I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong about that, but it sounds like it engages with a lot of these things in a super interesting way. Amazing. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading yeah, that. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. So can you tell me about your favorite forest book? I can. <laughs> I can. Um, it's the Manual of Deforestation, Carrie. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I mean, Narnia, like I said, is probably the literary forest that most impacted my childhood and the way I think about forests. But those books are so well known. I wanted to talk about something different here. Um, and I'm slightly sidestepping um, because the book isn't really the main point. It's the character that it's about. But it's a book about a particular woodland spirit called Baba Yaga, who um, I first heard about from a Russian family friend when I was a tiny girl. And she has haunted my consciousness ever since over the years. And she's now come back into being um, through this uh, kind of, I found her again via Instagram, essentially, this uh, account called Ask Baba Yaga. And it's imagined... Baba Yaga as an agony aunt um, responding in this kind of exquisite language and I can't remember the name of the writer who created the character in that form but it's worth having a look into. Um, the book I'm referencing is uh, a collection of traditional Russian and Slavic folk tales uh, which are all Kanja Baba Yaga. Um, it's called The Wild Witch of the East in Russian Fairy Tales, um, translated by Sibelian Forrester. Great name for Sibelian this podcast. Forrester, I know, isn't it incredible? <laughs> Sibelian. Um, they're mainly from the collection of Alexander Afansayev, who was a Russian Slavist and ethnographer who published one of the largest collections of folklore in the world in the form of nearly 600 Russian folk tales. Can you imagine? It's kind of impossible to get your head around that volume. Um, basically, he's the Russian counterpart to the Brothers Grimm. Um, and uh, the book is is translations by Forrester and then uh, contributions from a number of other writers and academics. And they are all really dark and really spooky and really brilliant. But what I love about this figure is that she um, she's ambiv- she's ambivalent and she's ambiguous in the way that the forest can be. Um, she always looks quite ferocious. She's kind of an old crone. Um, sometimes her her character is more benevolent and helpful and she's a guide to the protagonist in these stories who's usually an adolescent so obviously we have this idea of the forest as a space of exploration at puberty and all that kind of stuff um but sometimes she's a hungry fucking cannibal (laughs) and and quite monstrous um so i i find her this figure that embodies almost everything that we've been talking about about forests that they are not benevolent necessarily that they they're they're entities that are ancient but that we project so much onto um and in the figure of baba yaga it feels like taking something back you know and she lives in the forest she lives in these gnarled huts and represents the old crone message that you find in fairy tales from all different cultures, you know, that they appear like the witch in Hansel and Gretel. Um, So yeah, I would recommend investigating Baba Yaga and and doing so with glee and joy and a bit of trepidation. Yeah, she was a a figure of my childhood, but I haven't really thought about her since then. So it's nice to be reminded. Yeah, if if you're walking in the forest and you just glance to the corner of your eye, you'll usually see her Mm. just peeking out behind a tree, sometimes with an ax. Yes, yeah, so I there were so many books that I wanted to talk about here. I think partially because I love American literature and I think American literature especially is sort of obsessed with the idea of the woods and wilderness in many different ways and in ways that have changed throughout the history of America. I also talked a little bit about The Scarlet Letter and that is a book um, that I haven't read since high school 
it loomed very large in our curriculum because I grew up in a town that was right next to Salem, Massachusetts, where Hawthorne lived. Um, and also, I think it's big for any student um, who grows up in America. It's, it's this book that sort of people say, like, this defines am American literature. And it's the first of its kind to, like, psychologically examine the American psyche. I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. But um, it was written in 1850. And for those not familiar, it's the story of Hester Prynne, a woman who bears a child out of wedlock and is forced to wear a red A and is shunned by her Puritan community. I think everyone sort of knows the, the form. But um, the forest in this novel is a place where Hester can go to be free with her daughter Pearl, where she doesn't have to um, be judged by the members of her community. And I think that was quite revolutionary for the time because the forest by many was seen as, as a sort of fearful place where outside of society where anything could happen and um Hawthorne sort of turned that on its head and I think that is really interesting and it's just I I think it is an important book just to sort of understand the history of American literature and the sort of puritanical roots of America as well listening to you talk about the Scarlet Letter the thing that stands out for me is that there, it's women finding freedom in the forest which feels like it was possibly quite transgressive in itself yes totally well and and I think the book itself is transgressive because it doesn't suggest that Hester Prynne is a bad person. Right. That sounds great. Yay. <laughs> Yay, Hawthorne. I was talking to you, to you. Personality shines through. This is Literary Friction. I am Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Luke Turner to give our monthly book recommendations. So, Octavia, would you like to start? With pleasure. Um, I am recommending a book called Suicide Blonde by Darcy Steinker. Steinker? Stinker? I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. It's S-T-E-I-N-K-E. -E. Um, and it's uh, absolutely brilliant. I was sent it by a very kind uh, publicist before Christmas and was like, I'm definitely going to read that over Christmas. And, and I did. Um, it's just, yeah, it's incredibly sexy. It's very erotic, but it's also just her writing. It's so live and evocative and beautiful. Her descriptions are completely original to me, but also nail exactly what they're talking about. It's an amazing tension that I find very rare, actually, in fiction writing. Um, so she describes the squares of plastic cheese in a deli as being in wedding dress shades, which I <laughs> fucking loved. Um, and when one character vomits red wine uh, down some stairs, she writes a long line of glittering burgundy ribbon down the stairwell. And ju she just manages to turn the abject into something quite beautiful, but it doesn't lose the way in which it's abject at the same time. Um, and it's, it's basically about this woman called Jessie. She's 29 years old. She's lost adrift in San Francisco. She's clinging on to a relationship with a man who can't give her what she wants. Um, she's kind of sexually, sort of sexually compulsively hooked on him. Um, and she's trying to find what, what, you know, what the answer is basically. Um, and she falls into this kind of heavy drinking, drug taking crowd of outsiders, including this incredibly brilliant, grotesque woman called Madam Pig, who's the one who vomits red wine <laughs> downstairs. Um, and she's just, she's so grotesque. And you don't find characters like that that often in contemporary literature either. She seems like some kind of ghost from the past to me. 
And uh, and she leads Jesse to this character called Madison, who's maybe Madam Pig's daughter or maybe her lover or maybe even both in this really horrific way. Um, and all boundaries collapse. And then you find yourself in this kind of amazing sexual psychological hinterland. Um, and it was published in 1992 and they've reissued it. And it still reads as incredibly fresh. And just the way that desire kind of breeds in our every moment, she really nails that on the head. Uh, and it's got an introduction by Maggie Nelson, who loves it <laughs> and I love Maggie so you know that was all it was all good I recommend it very highly but it's not it's definitely not comfortable reading definitely definitely not comfortable reading and and also not one to read on the train I would say <laughs> for the eroticism <laughs> or one to read on the train <laughs> or definitely one to read on the train <laughs> sounds that's fantastic right. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna hunt this down yeah I reckon you'd enjoy kind of it <laughs> yeah 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 definitely <laughs> Okay, Luke, could we have your recommendation? Well, I, I was the last book I finished. I was quite. I was listening to the, the podcast you did uh, with masculinity, talking about masculinity, mm. and who was it? Was it you, your dad reads a Patrick O'Brien books about all the men at sea? That's right. I love Patrick O'Brien. <laughs> he, he's my kind of my favourite writer at the moment because it's something like that's. I made me feel very old when you're saying your dad loved it, but um, there's. I, I just love how kind of he, he talking about writing about nature and 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 he really gets that. And I find his books absolutely gripping. Is, but he, sort of, is that Master and Commander? Master and Commander series. The kind of, yeah, sort of uh, sailing around fighting the French. Um, but uh, yeah, so, but uh, that, that, was, that was just kind of amused me that you were talking about that. I was like, well, I like those books. Um, <laughs> anyway, but the book I'm reading now, nearly finished, is amazing. David Wojnarowicz's uh, Weight of the Earth, which is kind of not really a book by him. It's his tape journals that were transcribed and um, now have been collected and printed, which is quite strange because you, you feel slightly voyeuristic. And, you know, some of them are recorded for a friend, a Marion, I think she's called. And I just I just find them really compelling. It's like, oh, being able to write like that would be incredible. But to be able to marshal words in your head to be so pure when you're speaking into a tape, as he does... I, I absolutely am um, finding it really quite moving, a lot of it. Um, and it's sort of, it's the story of him just existing in New York and his attempts at a relationship in the early, early earlier tapes and in the later one kind of coming to terms with an awareness of having HIV. And the later on it becomes a lot more about his dreams, which oddly I'm, I'm not so into the dream part. I much prefer it when he's sort of... Um, one, there's some incredible sex tapes in it. You know, he, there's a Puerto Rican guy who comes and fucks him, and it's just so hot. Just two pages, and it's really, really sexy. It's, it's wonderful. But I, what I really like is the way he's just unguarded and doesn't care about what he's saying about the art world. You know, he's, he's got a lot of suspicion of 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 the of the the art world that he was existing in, and some of the stuff he says about. Um, kind of the replacement of God with the machine according to the futurists, but then now the microchip is God and uh, connected networks. He's kind of predicting the internet and what happens, what happened with the internet and how it's infected all our lives, you know, way before it was ever anything that people had heard of. Um, and there's something about his writing as well that I really like in, in the same way as, as Derek Jarman. It's, it's got this sort of queerness to it, which is not on message. You know, I think now Jarman or David would be seen as being kind of problematic in some ways. What they say is not a, to orthodoxy. You know, he's really rude about the theory in this. He's kind of very suspicious of theory. Now theory is such a sort of dominant part of cultural discourse, particularly around things like gender and sexuality. And I like that. There's just there's a sense of sort of 
some of these queer writers who who were writing before the internet that then there's not any self censorship. Mm. There's no ooh, there's no sort of slight queasiness about whether or not they're going to get in trouble for what they say, and and I like that energy. It really comes off the page. So yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a really amazing. But I still feel it's kind of you know reading somebody's private tape journals there is a there's, a there's an oddness to that there's a strangeness that makes me feel quite uncomfortable but i in a way that experience i, I find quite rewarding it sounds brilliant that yeah, sounds really great worth getting yeah. i've never read any of his stuff no neither so. had i before this so um yeah this i think it's probably a good introduction yeah cool well um my recommendation this month is the novel the secret place by tana french you either of you read any no. ton of French no so I, I read this over the break um, and I feel like for the past three or so years people have been like you have to read ton of French the books are sold as like just detective novels but they're not actually detective novels they're novels about like the psyche and characters and moral complexity and Donna Tartt and I was like okay this sounds great so <laughs> finally um finally I picked up The Secret Place and I'm I am really glad that I did so Tana French she's an American writer who lives in Dublin and her first book Into the Woods was published in 2007 it was the first in the Dublin Murder Squad series which again makes this sound <laughs> like something I would never read but um so I just love that it's, it's called, called Into, Into the, the Woods, woods. Yeah, and yeah. we're doing a show yeah. about Out of the Woods I hadn't thought about that <laughs> that's, really that's interesting yeah, I wish I had read it so I could talk about it later <laughs> on the show, but I haven't. So, But these books, they are a sort of series, but you don't have to read them in order because each book features a different detective from the Dublin Murder Squad solving a different crime. And so you get characters that sort of appear in secondary roles that then get their own book. But this this book, The Secret Place, is I think the fifth in the series, and I hadn't read any other ones and it was fine. Um, and I am, I'm really not a big crime reader, um, but I don't think you have to like reading crime fiction to like these books because they, they have really compelling plots and she's a really, really, really beautiful writer. But more than that, she is so interested in characters, the nuances of human interactions, the way we think and act and feel and love and hate and like gets like burrows deeply into those things in ways that are often uncomfortable, but totally revealing and fascinating and the secret place is set at an elite girl school in in dublin and is set actually over the course of one day with some flashbacks with two detectives who come in to open the cold case of a murder that's happened at the school um and interviewing these teenage girls and it's a little bit about witchcraft it's about growing up it's about the way we are when we're teenagers and how messed up that can be, but also beautiful that can be. And I really loved it. So I would recommend it. She's a perennial bestseller in America. She hasn't really been that successful here in the UK for some reason, but she has a new standalone coming out, I think in February called The Witch Elm. Um, and it seems to be getting a lot of attention. So I hope that more people will start to read her, but I can't wait to read her other books. I'm, I'm a total fangirl now. That sounds brilliant. Yeah. Also, I should say my mom was telling me over Christmas that she reads. She read the first Master and Commander and really loved it. Yeah, yeah. Mama. So I think. Yeah. Patrick O'Brien. Think everyone loves Patrick O'Brien. Yeah, the return of Patrick O'Brien. The return is of Patrick O'Brien. That's right. <laughs> Hello, Sailor. Like my sense of That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Luke Turner, 
Paula at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at LitFriction. You can also get in touch with us via email litfriction at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We will be back with a full show in a month, although we will have a mini-sode in two weeks, so check that out. And until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>